Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Club Chimera podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. This episode is part one of The Aftermath, which deals with different aspects of the often overlooked yet traumatic post-fight stage of violent experiences. Without giving too much away, part one specifically deals with an aspect entitled The Double Tap, which might be summed up in the words of Michael Corleone in Godfather Part 3. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. It's worth mentioning that there is content in this episode that might be upsetting for some listeners. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. If you're still there, I'll be happy to hear your feedback. And also, if any movie buffs have noticed the relevance of this episode's soundtrack. I hope you enjoy the show. On the 14th of May, 1930, a 20-year-old woman stood waiting on the platform at Dusseldorf Station. The light was fading. Earlier that day, she had travelled from her home in Cologne in desperate hope to find work. Times were hard for most German citizens, driving them to extreme lengths to survive from day to day. The interwar period that would be known as the era of the Weimar Republic was a very grim moment in 20th century European history. Battered by the terrible repercussions of losing the most devastating war humankind had faced up to that point, severely indebted to pay back massive reparations to the victors, forced to make humiliating concessions that saw the demise of its cherished institutions, German society was headed into an abyss. From the darkness would emerge opportunistic human predators that would become synonymous with evil. However, before the genocidal reign of Adolf Hitler, other sinister figures ensured that the rest of the world would look fearfully at Germany. Maria Bootleys was stepping right into a city that had every reason to live in terror. For over a year, citizens had been plagued by a seemingly unending stream of sadistic attacks and murders committed by the vampire of Dusseldorf. His real name was Peter Curtin, an individual whose crimes would rival the horrendous atrocities of his countryman Fritz Harman the vampire of Hanover, who had only been executed some five years previously. Harman, a thief, burglar, fence and police informant, had horrified Germany when he had confessed to killing at least 27 young men and teenagers by biting through their necks. To add to the horror, there had been a strong suspicion that the murderer had sold his victim's flesh, claiming it to be pork, as well as their clothes on the thriving black market scene. Harman claimed to have been gripped by a mysterious and uncontrollable passion. However, he'd kept his focus on those living rough around railway stations, whereas Curtin's savagery seemed more expansive. By his own admission, he had been a serial arsonist from an early age and was also excited by the sight of blood. He had bizarre, narcissistic fantasies of being at the heart of violent catastrophes as well as being seen as a great hero. His reign of terror was inevitable. Curtin killed animals, children, men and women. He confessed to raping, bludgeoning, stabbing, strangling and drowning his victims. Dusseldorf had endured a year of Curtin's fugue with both police and the underworld desperate to end this madness. Yet here stood this lone young woman waiting on the city's railway platform late into the evening. Maria Bootleys had met a woman she called Frau Bruckner when she had arrived earlier that day in Dusseldorf. The woman, whose real name was Brucker, had apparently promised to provide work for Maria and agreed to meet her at the station at 8 o'clock. When the woman didn't show, Maria became noticeably worried. Possibly picking up on this outward show of anxiety, she was approached by a man. The stranger explained that he could arrange lodgings for Maria in Arkenbachstrasse with his sister. With seemingly no other viable options, Maria agreed to accept this unsolicited offer of help. 
However, it wasn't long before she sensed something was wrong. The man had set off her intuitive survival instincts. He wanted her to follow him into a badly lit area of Parkland. Maria refused, but the stranger was insistent. One can only imagine her fear at the time of this predicament. Suddenly, another man intervened. This gave Maria the courage to immediately ask the citizen whether they were headed towards Arkenbachstrasse. The second man replied that this particular street was in a different direction altogether. Maria moved to his side and the first man left the scene. The incident was over and the young woman sought shelter with her saviour, Peter Curtin. When we think about developing awareness for self-protection training, the emphasis generally falls upon the pre-fight, pre-incident stage of a violent situation. We talk about being switched on to our surroundings, being alert to changes in our immediate environment and assessing the likelihood of a threat. Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Cooper's colour code, Gavin DeBecker's pre-incident indicators, or PINs for short, and even Sergeant Dennis Tuller's drill address events that lead up to the point of contact. Cooper's code addresses mental stages of awareness that a defender might develop personal security habits, not be caught off guard, and to act accordingly when faced with a possible threat. DeBecker's pins provide us with seven warning signs that a deceptive human predator is likely to exhibit prior to executing their assault. Finally, the Tudor drill provides information on the distance the pistol user should expect to be reasonable to neutralise an enemy armed with a stabbing implement. They have become standards that best prepare individuals to deal with a violent threat and are held in high regard in the world of law enforcement as well as civilian-based self-protection. There is arguably a good reason for this emphasis. The better mentally and tactically prepared one can be, the better chances one might control a dangerous threat to their lives. Sensible self-protection teachers strongly make the trite point that prevention is better than the cure and if a violent situation cannot be avoided, action beats reaction. A valid reason drives the need to promote pre-fight thinking. Due to confusion over assaults and symmetrical alpha fighting, as well as a natural desire to become involved in the tactile nature of combative play, self-defence and martial arts training is inevitably largely made up of physical skills. Enlightened self-protection teachers have taken it upon themselves to not change the status quo too much in this respect. After all, who wants to spend every lesson watching slideshow presentations and going out for commentary walking tours to your local district? but to implement exercises that promote realistic and legally defensive preemptive counter-assault tactics and forge a combative mindset as well as send their classes home with instructions to adopt better personal security habits. I think it's reasonable to say that pre-fight stage of training for civilian self-protection has greatly improved over the past few decades and has now become a regular part of most respected programmes. However, the post-fight isn't such a common training concern. Yet the unseen enemy is never more potent than when after an initial threat is thwarted. In his autobiography, Watch My Back, Jeff Thompson addresses something he calls the double tap. He draws from his experience working the nightclub and pub doors of 1980s Coventry in the UK, when the city had a large reputation for violence. Jeff would later extrapolate his models for handling fear and managing stress from this book through his self-protection and martial arts teaching. The double tap, as he first acknowledged it, referred to times when beaten gangsters and thugs made good on their threats that they would come back, or when a separate incident occurred not long after the first one. It's not uncommon for the second threat to be worse, which was arguably the case with Maria Bootleys. The English idiom, out of the frying pan and into the fire, comes to mind. 
The celebrated US military strategist Colonel John Boyd recognised the importance of linking the awareness an individual should have prior to an incident to what happens afterwards. Drawing from his experience working as a wingman during the Korean War, Boyd developed mathematical theories and strategies that would be applied by the US Marines and the US government. It was most famously used in Operation Desert Storm during the First Gulf War. His 1976 presentation, Patterns of Conflict, had become hugely influential by this time. Boyd devised a decision-making hierarchy he called the OODA loop. OODA is an acronym for Observe, Orient, Decide and Act. The loop has been adapted for the worlds of corporate finance, litigation and of course civilian self-defence. We will define each stage in a rapid self-protection context. For the predator, the observed stage is when a target, mark, victim and or opportunity has been seen. For the defender or prey, this is when they have spotted a perceived or possible threat. This is the raw data that will influence the decision-making process, based on an evolving situation. Orient or orientation is next, and the part Boyd considered to be the most important stage, as this is the part where various personal factors can shape the decision-making process, such as cultural, genetic and previous experience. This is also the part when the predator or prey familiarise themselves to the situation they're intending or need to act upon. The predator, having observed what they consider to be a likely soft target, now close in using tactics they found favour them personally, based on previous experience. Likewise, the prey or defender, having spotted a possible threat, begin confirming the nature of the threat and start preparing their tactics based on training and or historical personal experience. The decision is then made based on the observation and orientation stages. Does the predator make their play now? Or at all? What options does the prey or defender have at their disposal? Finally, we come to the act stage, which speaks for itself. This is the end result of the previous three stages. Predator or prey action their decision. However, being a loop, this is not really the final stage at all, as now the action feeds back information to the observed stage and the stages continue as before. When two opponents or enemies face one another, the individual organisation that has the advantage is the one that has moved further on with their decision-making process. Therefore, if we visualise the loops of two opposing sides as two spinning circles, the one moving the fastest is the more likely to succeed. Besides going at a faster tempo, those with a more fluid OODA loop can better get inside their adversary's loop. The adversary is stuck trying to play catch-up, desperately trying to make decisions on incomplete or outdated information. Furthermore, as we address the double-tap problem that might be encountered during the aftermath of a traumatic situation, we see that chaos can be caused when an individual neglects to keep their loop spinning at the right tempo. The Maria Bootley's unfortunate episode exemplifies the double-tap situation, which is why I often use it as a case study. Looking at it objectively, it's easy to see how she put herself in danger in the first instance, but the good self-protection learner parks their judgement in favour of understanding the human element. Maria Bootley's was a desperate woman living in a country in desperate times. She was 20 years old. She needed work and this need was enough to persuade her to make the journey from her native Cologne to travel to its historical rival, Dusseldorf. Everyone makes calculated risks and one can assume that she was one of the majority of young people making such journeys into dangerous places. We don't know what the first man said, but we might assume a degree of charm was useful for Maria to believe his story about having a sister who was willing to put her up for the night. Gavin de Becker lists charm as the second pre-incident indicator, or PIN, PIN on his list. That offer alone might be considered to be loan sharking, which is de Becker's fifth PIN. Humans are a highly social species of animal, and opportunists manipulate certain hardwired instincts and social conditioning to bypass protective boundaries. Many a sale is made by offering a free gift, often thrusting the gift upon a prospective customer to elicit a need to reciprocate. 
We can only speculate if there was anything else that made Maria highly suspicious of the direction her new acquaintance was taking her. Maybe the first stranger provided too many details in his story about his sister's alleged place in Arkenbachstrausser, which is third on Debecker's list of pins. Perhaps he made unsolicited promises about what he wouldn't do. We can imagine that promises of not trying to have sex with her or hurt her being made as he tried to persuade her to walk through the park. This penultimate pin reveals the predator's real intentions, as they promise not to do exactly what they have in mind for their victim. Finally, we know that Maria recognised the last pin, which is discounting the word no. This is a massive red flag and a strong giveaway that an individual wants to control the person rejecting them or their actions. The first stranger was insistent on getting Maria to follow him into the dark park, which presented the opportunistic Peter Curtin with the opening to make his move. As far as the Ooda loop is concerned, Maria was behind both her enemies. However, she had almost caught up with her first enemy before the second one, Peter Curtin, arrived on the scene and completely wrong-footed both Predator and Prey. During his retelling of the events of that fateful night, Curtin describes how he followed Maria and the first man from a distance down several streets as they left the train station. Maybe he recognised the familiar characteristics of Predator and Prey. The first two stages of his OODA loop decision-making process was as smooth as they could get in this respect. He would have become a keen observer of people, being a regular stalker of Dusseldorf streets. He would have been well-orientated in the ways of criminals and the actions of likely targets. The Maria Bootley's incident must have fed heavily into Curtin's dual narcissistic fantasies to be hailed as a hero when he saved the distressed woman from a predator and then suddenly to be feared by the same person. He had reached the act part of his OODA loop in a way that neither the first man nor Maria had foreseen, actively getting inside their respective loops. With the first man out of the picture, the young Maria Bootleys was probably experiencing a psychological and physiological come down and was totally unaware that she was facing a new danger. Rapid OODA loop, often scorned on by academic devotees of Boyd, is actually the most relevant to interpersonal self-protection training. Motig went so far as to reduce it to a tighter loop called the three R's, recognise, read and respond. The argument here is that the average assault situation leaves little time for orientation and decision making. To be seen as a possible threat, we have to assume that the predator is already orientated and making his decision or has already made it as he approaches you. To get your own feedback loop moving at the right tempo, you need to immediately recognise whether he is a threat. Does he meet the necessary criteria? Does he have accessibility, capability and intent? You might be protected by some form of barrier, but he might have the necessary tools or means to get past that barrier and gain access. Build, age and attitude can be deceptive when it comes to looking at capability, but you're going to have to make a superficial assumption in this case. Intent is even harder to gauge, which is why we teach concepts like the fence unless the predator is armed. This dovetails perfectly into reading a predator's intentions, which then dictate your response, leading you back to recognising any immediate secondary threats or hazards. More likely than opportunistic serial killers masquerading as our saviours, our double tap might be a speeding vehicle as we run into traffic having successfully fled a violent scene. As we review Maria Bootley's double tap situation, we note that we don't know if Gavin De Becker's first pin, that of forced teaming, was used by Curtin to lure Maria Bootley's away with him. However, it might be worth noting that the vampire of Dusseldorf had been born and raised in Maria Bootley's home city of Cologne. Such a connection might have made a young, lost person entering a strange city feel a sense of familiarity based on this fact. The charm factor might be assumed by Curtin's gallant disruption of the first man's attempts to take Maria into the dark park and his offer to act as her new guide. 
According to another victim who survived Curtin, Frau Kuhn, the killer used the feed line Good Evening to disarm her before grabbing her by the lapels and stabbing her 24 times. Whatever other tactics he used on Maria Bootleys, it was enough to get her to agree, at first, to go with him to recover from her ordeal with the first man. However, when it seemed fairly obvious to the unfortunate woman that Curtin was expecting sexual payment for his loan sharking of a room for the night, Maria refused and asked if he could find her some other place to stay. Rather than forcing the issue, the murderer decided to play the role of the gallant knight again. Not only did he seem to respect Maria's rejection, but he agreed to her request. He took her by tram, further out of the city, and then walked her towards Graffenberg Woods. This was where Curtin suddenly decided to act and grabbed the shocked woman by the throat. He made his intentions clear and she offered no resistance. Following the terrible ordeal, she convinced Curtin he hadn't hurt her. The rapist let her go back to the tram, believing that she wouldn't remember where he lived. Maria ended up back in the city, where she wandered the streets that night until she found sanctuary with the sisters of St Gertrude Hiss house. As it turned out, Curtin's decision to prey on Maria Bootleys was his undoing. Whilst Maria stayed at Gertrude Hess house, she tried to re-establish contact with the woman who had stood her up at the station. She wrote her prospective employee a letter mentioning her ordeal and hinted that she'd ended up in the hands of a potential murderer. But, as previously mentioned, she got the wrong name of the woman. Frau Brucker, and the letter ended up in the hands of a one Frau Brugman. Clearly a determined, intelligent and active individual, Brugman suspected the rapist might be the infamous vampire murderer that had held Dusseldorf in the grip of terror. Based on her suspicion, she made her own inquiries. She'd done a good detective job of tracking down a man of Curtin's description to his flat before taking her letter to the police. Curtin ended up confessing to 71 offences, including all the murders attributed to the city serial killer many arsons and many assaults, hoping his wife might be recompensed for handing him in. He expressed no remorse for his victims and added that he derived pleasure from recounting their fate at his hands. He blamed his crimes on his undeniably vicious and brutal upbringing in poverty. Like the similarly pathetic child murderer Ian Brady, he connected his sadism to a desire to lash out at society. When faced with a guillotine, he infamously asked if, just for an instant, he would be able to hear his own blood gush from the stump of his neck, believing this to be the pleasure to end all pleasures. How much of Curtin's sexual sadism disorder can be attributed to nature or nurture is up for debate. It certainly ran in the family, but the family then turned it upon itself. Whatever the conclusion, Curtin had caused a city-wide panic and international scandal not seen since Jack the Ripper, and his capture had revealed an amoral parasite that would foreshadow a criminal plague on the industrial world. There are many self-protection discussions and debates that can be drawn from Maria Bootley's encounter with Peter Curtin. Curtin partly implied that Maria had saved herself from further harm or even death by not resisting him. This lends support to the somewhat anti-self-defence argument that those who fight against rapists are more likely to be killed or seriously harmed. Many rapists and killers echo these sentiments. I'm not discounting the valuable self-protection information that can be gathered from interviewing criminals, but it shouldn't always be taken at face value. In his same statement, Curtin revealed what was probably his main reason for not killing that night. A friend of his had spotted him with Maria Bootleys on the tram. He'd also said that he hadn't intended to kill that night, possibly quite content with his own perverse idea of being the young woman's saviour against the initial predator. By his own account, and the nature of many of Curtin's killings, the deaths of his victims were solely down to his impulses at the time. To further contradict the theory that compliance would ensure survival against Curtin, we only have to look back at the case in February 1929 that had first brought the public's attention to his crimes, that of the aforementioned Frau Kuhn, after distracting her with the good evening line, he had grabbed the unfortunate woman and instructed her not to scream before stabbing her with a pair of scissors. 
It was Kuhn's screams that probably made Curtin abandon his kill. Rape in the literal sense was not the primary motivation for this murder. He set fires, tortured animals, and often sated his appetite by just hitting men and women over the back of the head with hammers and axes. He was often careless and had the advantages of operating in a world where serial killing was an emerging crime and forensic investigation was in its infancy. A good dose of luck along with the proactive initiative of Frau Brugman, surely one of history's great unsung heroes, led to the inevitable capture of this prolific serial killer. Double tap is the first thing I address in post-fight training. Technically, it throws you back into the in-fight stage again and reinforces the principle of perpetual combative motion. I often teach the unavoidable fact that fights move. The double tap shows that situations constantly shift as well. This principle doesn't just apply to self-defence either. Many a sport fighter has been defeated after they have thought they were on the threshold of victory. Going into the traditional world of martial arts, practical karate teacher Lee Sims reminds me of Musashi Miyamoto's Three Kiais. This is something I mentioned in my ebook, Mordred's Victory, in the chapter Kiai, the Fading Cry of the Martial Artist. According to Musashi, there is a pre-fight Kiai, an in-fight Kiai, and a post-fight Kiai. The third Kiai might be considered to be a deterrent, but it also indicates an awareness that the battle isn't necessarily over when the fight is won. In his short film Bouncer, Jeff Thompson uses the double tap as a key plot device and paraphrases a proverb often credited to the great shogun Tokugawa Ieyasu. At the moment of victory, tighten the straps of your helmet. Thanks as always to all the support those listening out there have shown me. I'm always happy to hear back from you. Any suggestions for future shows are duly noted. Thanks again to Lee Sims of the Striking Thoughts podcast. I gave Lee a quick call during the writing of this episode and we traded ideas on what we have used to teach preparation for the double tap. I recall my time's training in the 2000s at Stevie B's gym in Acops Green, Birmingham, England. This was where I did most of my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu training under Bradley Estemer of Gracie Baja. I also did some MMA training there and I was invited to attend Stevie B's own self-defence class he used to run every Friday. I had some great times there training with a wide range of martial artists, a good number of which are out there dealing with interpersonal violence on a regular basis. I'm not talking about security work. So I feel a shout out to Stevie B and Cass Lester is in order. Also, when researching this particular episode, I reread Jeff Thompson's Watch My Back, which reminded me of the great times I had training in Jeff's special early morning closed group sessions, as well as on his self-defense instructor course and the many private lessons I had with his teacher, Matty Evans. Jeff, Matty, Tony Summers and John Anderson marked some of the best times I've had learning martial arts. And this podcast is dedicated to them, as well as one of the greatest teachers I've ever learned from, Mo Teague. Mo remains a good friend and, as you will have heard, was the creator of the three R's. This forms part of his groundbreaking conflict management map. If you haven't already, to keep subscribing to the show through iTunes or any of the other places you choose to download your podcasts. Please share and tell your friends about the show. As we used to say back in the circus, no publicity can compete with the word of mouth. Your positive reviews and ratings are of enormous help. Please also keep updated via my social media outlets. I have Club Chimera business pages on Google, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. My regular blog is published on the Club Chimera website, clubchimera.com. I promise to make some headway with a seminar, which I've planned soon in the Oxfordshire area, so keep watching all these respective spaces for more information on that. Next episode, we will get further into the aftermath and look at the black dog and the law, amongst other matters. Thanks for listening.